0: Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in today to Free Thinking with And Our guest today is a professor of plant science in the College of Agricultural Sciences and professor of biology in the Elberly College of Science at Penn State. She's been in plant molecular genetics research for almost 30 years now and is the founding director of the Plant Institute at Penn State. She's here with us today to talk about genetically modified organisms or GMOs as they're known along with some common misconceptions about them. She's also here to share some of her team's incredible epigenetic discoveries. Please welcome Dr. Sally McKenzie to Free Thinking Vermont. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Oh,
1: thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Look, you know, I I wanted to do, you know, a a free thinking episode about GMOs because they get so much attention from a marketing standpoint, and there's so, you, know, you drop that word GMO in the middle of a cocktail party, and the next thing you know, you could be thrown out on the back porch. Um, it's, it's gotten so fervent in discussion that, and I don't understand why, because a lot of people who argue and talk about GMO don't know what they're talking about. So let's, let's back up a little bit. Maybe you school us in a layman sense. Tell us what GMOs are and what they are used for. Really what does the term GMO mean and what is it used for? So so
1: historically, um, genetic engineering is just the introduction of foreign DNA into a genome. And that started, you know, a long time ago, in the 70s. But genetically modified organisms came about when we started doing it in plants. So this was going on biomedically. This has been going on in other areas, but when we got involved with plants and with agriculture, you know, GMOs are now a part of our agricultural system. So it just means that we introduce foreign DNA, foreign genes, um, or foreign uh, manipulations to the genetic information to make the plant perform better, usually in an agricultural sense.
0: Okay, and what, of what value is it? I mean, explain wh- why did somebody start off thinking, let me take you know, this foreign ge- ge- genome and stick it into this plant? What, what was the purpose behind that to begin with?
1: Yeah, so so it turns out that there are a lot of plants who don't have the capabilities we need in agriculture. So, for example, we have um, diseases and pests and they threaten our crops and they threaten the crops of developing countries. The problem is that in that particular crop, you may not have a resistance gene. And so you're stuck. So it's really it's like a toolbox. It's just one tool in your toolbox as a breeder. So sometimes you're introducing a gene from another species, usually another plant species that gives you that capability. So for example, uh, papaya in Hawaii, you know, you've got viruses and the ring spot virus nearly up and wiped out the entire crop. What are you going to do? So you either give up because you can't breed papaya fast enough to get ahead of that virus or you genetically engineer a gene that will give you that resistance. And that's how that, that industry was saved, was using what they now term GMOs. It's a genetic engineering tool.
0: Yeah, but people have gone, you know, off the deep end saying that, you know, you have GMO. Uh, uh, plants that are not digestible by humans. Uh, that's a misconception, is it not? There's plenty of misconceptions. Why we'll don't talk a little bit about the misconceptions of GMO? So
1: I think that um, early on, there was so much nervousness about the idea that geneticists were involved in their crops. I think most people don't know where their food comes from, that there was the impression that, you, um, that, that when you process food, it's the same as when you genetically engineer it. And so... Um, You know, gluten, a lot of people have an intolerance to gluten. They think that's a GMO associated trait. We don't have genetically engineered wheat. Gluten is just a a product of breeding. Um, uh, High fructose corn syrup, you probably don't like that in your food either. It's not genetically engineered. Those are not genetically engineered traits, but people tend to think of the whole thing as just one big GMO uh, delivery. So I think people don't really understand those things that they read about that may not be good for their health that are associated with food processing from those things that basically are genetic engineering of a crop to make it perform better in the field they they seem all the same to the average consumer
0: and i would think that you know if you just kind of just ponder it for half a second we have been man has been modifying plants for eons now thousands of years right i mean trying to make a hardier plant or trying to have one that's more resistant to you know rain or more resistant to mold that's been what almost all farmers have been doing in the farming industry, right?
1: Right, I mean, that's where all of your food comes from. And none of the crops that you eat would have been edible had we not done it. The thing is now, you know, why you've got the average consumer saying, I don't want GM as a technology, you've got the average scientist saying, I don't see that we can actually improve our crops rapidly enough to deal with climate change unless we have every tool in our toolbox. So you have sort of this, you know, this tension between scientists wanting to be productive and you know, the average consumer just saying, yeah, but I, I don't like what I'm hearing. And, and somehow we have to bridge that. And I think it's with education. You know, people need to understand that, like I said, papaya wouldn't be here had we not gotten involved that way. You know, Vermont was one of the states that absolutely said no GMO in our state till they found out we were using it in cheese. You know, there are a lot of things about agriculture that people just don't realize that have been extremely useful to us.
0: Right. And when you say I've been using it in cheese, I mean, now I, the one thing about, and maybe this is a misconception that I have, but you know, when we go back in time, we weren't mass producing corn at the level that we are producing it now. And we have modified corn to make it hardier and healthier so that we could, <coughs> excuse me, so that we could literally use it in the entire food chain. I mean, you know, corn is, you know, I often say, that's why I try, I, I try my best to eat grass-fed meat if I can get it because I've never seen a cow walk up to a stalk of corn and take a bite, ever, and it would not naturally do that. So, you know, why would we take a product that a cow wouldn't eat in nature, spread it on the ground and fatten it up with that, knowing that that's going to get into the cow's system and be passed on to its progeny so that it becomes genetically part of that cow and the next thing you know, I'm eating a genetically modified animal. And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about cheese, right?
1: No, when I'm talking about cheese, I'm talking about rennet. So, in the old days, you know, you need this enzyme that we called rennet, and you used to take it from a calf's gut. You know, we, we, we would slaughter calves and then we would take this from their gut. And, and now we don't. We, we have a genetically engineered enzyme that we use, um, chymosin, in, in place of rennet. And so we use that widely. And of course, we would be still slaughtering calves. If we if we didn't, so I, I think a lot of people, even people you know, who feel the way you do, would be saying, "Yeah, I want that. I don't want to be slaughtering calves so that I can make cheese." So I think I think in that regard, you know, we just don't know a lot of what we genetically engineer. You know, insulin it's a genetically engineered um, you know uh, 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 medical uh, um, it's a it's a genetically engineered medicine that allows us to you know save quite a lot of money. And with the number of diabetics in this country, I think they, they're grateful for that, that intervention. But you know, you, you know, each one of these has to be thought of. You know, like you brought up the idea of how much corn we grow. Well, you know, over the next 30 years, we're gonna, we're gonna change the way we do agriculture. Why? Because people like you feel the way you do. You know, we're seeing more and more vegetarianism. Well, you're not gonna feed them with corn. So, you know, we can actually change the way agriculture works just as consumers, but that's not the GMO issue, right? So, so what you decide to buy can actually impact what people will sell to you. And the more you're eating vegetables and a broader diversity of vegetables, the more you say, I want my vegetables grown locally, fair enough, then ask agriculture to give that to you and growers will make that happen. You know, we, we got into this big cycle because people are huge meat eaters. And so what, do you, what are you gonna feed them on? And now you start that, that cycle of most of what we grow in the Midwest is to feed our animals. Well. Don't 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 eat them, and they won't sell them to you. So this is all kind of a, a conversation, as I said, between you know the agricultural scientists and and the consumer. I,
0: I well, think the scientist should... is trying to do is just provide to the consumer what it is they have, they demand. So as more and more consumers demand a more plant based diet, will we start to see more and more plants being genetically modified to be able to handle the production?
1: I think that you're going to find that genetically modified is going to mean a broader array of of things. You know, you're going to see CRISPR technologies coming on board. We're now using those. Those are where you go in. You don't leave any foreign DNA in the plant. You just go in and you make one precise genetic change. It's valuable. It's particularly valuable for disease resistance. And you got to realize now, as we sit in a pandemic, that dealing with viruses is huge. And it's really huge in the agricultural space too. If you don't have a gene for resistance, viruses can wipe out your entire crop. So we need to get in there and we need to get in there precisely and quickly. So you're gonna see those kinds of modifications. Uh, You're gonna see epigenetic modifications, you know, things that don't leave any trace that you've been there, but they change the way genes are expressed and make them more hardy, more resilient for the environment. All of those things have to happen.
0: Talk a little bit more about epigenetic breeding and, and what does that mean? What does that entail? What do you do to get, to make that happen?
1: So that's a really interesting example in in epigenetics, what you're really talking about aren't the genes per se, it's how they're expressed. It's taking a plant and in response to environment, changing the way they express their genes. So they're more hardy, they're more resistant, they're more, more durable in a changing environment. But the thing is you have to go in first and you have to modify a particular gene to make that happen. So you use genetic engineering or modification just to start the process. You can take that modification out, but afterwards, now the plant is changing the way it expresses, the way it's progeny expressed. You've now got a new line, and it's now more hardy, more resilient, and and it's got higher vigor than what it had before. So that's huge. Everyone would want that. It leaves no genetic trace that you've been there, but you got to use genetic technology to get in. So so this is where you're going to have to to understand that in some ways when you say I don't want that tool used at all you lose a lot of really wonderful advances in agriculture that could be beneficial to everyone.
0: I mean it's, it's almost like you you you're using science to speed up the evolutionary process anyway, right? I mean the plants would eventually do something like this for themselves to deal with the new levels of heat or the you know, lack of rain, the drought, those things, plants would basically evolve to survive. But yeah. you're setting up that, that process.
1: If given the time, that the problem is that climate change is happening faster than plants can actually adapt to. So what we face now in our agricultural systems and even in our forest systems and our natural systems is that plants can't keep up with a changing environment. And everyone knows that's when things go extinct is when an environment is no longer, um, you know, conducive to the, to, the, to the vitality of that organism. So, so at this point, I think growers and breeders feel like we have to bring in some new tools. We have to speed this up quite a bit from, from where we were before, and it will take GMO.
0: And, and I guess what people are also not paying attention to is the fact that we have been doing a, such a poor job in managing our soil in this in this world i mean you know uh, we have soil that has been you know completely saturated with you know caustic chemicals and things over the course of the last hundred years of this industrial revolution and we don't do and practice the way we should practice tilling soil turning soil over planting other plants there to revitalize some of the nutrients and those kind of things and tilling those into the soil the way we used to but then some people would say but instead of modifying the plant to deal with the damage we've done to the soil, why don't we clean up the soil so that the plants are more hardy? You know what I mean? And
1: most scientists would say you do both. You do both. Yeah, so, so there is a whole field that's exploding now of, of microbiology that is basically soil microbiology, understanding how microbes, fungi, and bacteria interact with the root. They communicate with the root, they protect the root. Um, they, they create a, a whole system underground that allows the plant to communicate with its soil, if you will, and to take nutrients more efficiently. We have to do that too. So, you know, that whole microbiome uh, initiative that happens you know, around the country is, is really aimed at that. It's it's, teaching, uh, you know, it's it's teaching farmers how to be more conscientious about the way they condition their soils at the same time, we're worrying with the, about the plant that actually has to live in those soils. You do both.
0: We and then we found with uh, the you know the the passage of the farm bill and the allowing of the, of uh, processing hemp in America, we know that hemp has a profound effect on soil because it leases out the cost of chemicals. It actually stores. which should destroy the hemp once it's it's been grown. That's kind of like what that that uh, what do they call it? Um, a plant that should be planted in between each yield, right? So are 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 we looking to find more plants like that, that are ground cover that could help revitalize our soil?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, growers have done that for a long time. They they put legumes in between their crops. And legumes, of course, will leave the nitrogen there from, from nitrogen fixation. So, I mean, you can, you know, really savvy growers know exactly how to recondition their soils. But at the same time, um, You know, as we think about what our agricultural system should look like, there are a lot of people who just feel that the real problem is just we're asking for too much. You know, these vast amounts of land that are dedicated to, you know, one crop, Um, that monoculture situation is just, um, let's say it's not really sustainable ecologically. That's not the way plants naturally grow. One species grown for 5,000 acres uninterrupted. So, you know, at some point you do reach a limit where the system really isn't going to accommodate what you want from it. And you really have to accommodate the system.
0: I mean, we're starting to see that because of, I guess in the last hundred years, you've seen that, you know, we went from what, about 2 billion people on the planet to now over 7 billion people that we have to feed. And now because of droughts all over the world, people are migrating to areas in the world where they can't grow plants. Um, They're right on the edge of, you know, some sort of environmental change climate change that's thats too hot or not a Goldilocks zone. So, I mean, what does the future in a way have in store for us? I mean, it's going to be more work on, on, people on behalf of people like you that are going to keep us in the game. But, I mean, do you look at the future as being dire?
1: I think that <clears throat> what's been dire has been the fact that policymakers have to some extent taken their eye off the ball a little bit. You know, it isn't really clear to me that we've had a cohesive policy, at least in in the U.S., about what we think it should look like. And so I think if you give the scientific community a mandate, you know, sort of their marching orders of here's where we want to go, I think you'd find that the technologies are there to do a lot. But for example, are countries to become um, food secure? If they are, then why um, does Europe and the U.S. you know put pressure on them as to whether they can grow GMO crops or not? You know, who's gonna feed Bangladesh if we, don't, if we don't support golden rice initiatives? You know, who's gonna feed um, you know people in India if we don't allow them to use GM for eggplant production when they need it? I mean, they simply need it because the environmental conditions, particularly with regard to insects are just so dire. So, you know, in some way or another, there has to be kind of a cohesive policy, particularly by developed countries that say, if we will allow these countries to become food secure, we have to be part of the solution. And so putting pressure on them not to grow using technologies that, you know, that we as developed countries don't want to use it, it is probably not the answer because th- those are the countries that are struggling the most to really become food secure, to be able to feed their own populations. So in that regard, I feel like policy needs to follow. The issue right now is not the science. The science is safe. You know, GMO has been here for, what, 30 years? And during that entire 30 years, we have yet to see one single health issue associated and traceable to genetically modified organism, to to a GMO crop. It it just doesn't happen. You couldn't say that about your meat supply, about your your milk supply, about your your organic uh, vegetable supply. But you can say that about our GM products. And that's because it isn't really a safety issue, but it is a policy issue. How will we think about growing crops in the future? And I think the technologies, they're not all there yet, but, but science is really ready at the, at the fore to make this happen. It really has to be policymakers who educate, um, you know, the general populace to this is a safe technology, we're behind this technology, and this is where our agricultural system will go. And then I think that people wanna have more say in where their food comes from. I don't think it should be on internet. I think people should have the opportunity with their local officials to be able to say, we do or we do not approve, but with education. You know, that dialogue really has never been meaningful. It's always just been kind of a cantankerous relationship.
0: You go back to World War II when we had, you know, the Victory Gardens in America, what about, about 60% of the, the country grew their own vegetables and grew vegetables in, in their backyards. Um, I'm working with an organization, that's called Urban uh, Farming Organization, that um, literally has established and set up some things where they have, you know, vegetable walls. Where I mean, honestly, we could, you know, almost every building in this country could have a vegetable wall growing on the side of it, and could be as organic as they want it to be. And you would be producing enough food to not only feed America but feed half the world if yeah. we decided to do that. Make one wall of every house built a vegetable wall. You know, over the course of you know two or three growing cycles, you'd have enough food to feed your home, your household, and and probably half the neighborhood.
1: Well, but it takes time, and I don't know that, you know, the average American is going to be willing to make that investment. I do think communities can make that investment, you know? Neighborhoods can make that investment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, neighborhoods can make that investment by every school that they build, build, you know, a victory garden on the side of the school, and then, you know, make the students learn something about, you know, agriculture that way, because, again, we have an entire generation that's moving away from farming and at least might spark some interest in one or two students you know, along the way, right?
1: Absolutely, no, I, I vote for you.
0: <laughs> well, now your team has made some pretty incredible discoveries recently in epigenetic breeding. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, especially when it comes to how you can yield better crops and you know how you can get, grow hardier crops. Talk a little bit about that, the breakthroughs.
1: So we found that plants actually have the ability to be reprogrammed, and what that means is that If we sort of tinker with one particular gene that all plants have, it turns out that you can sort of fool the plant into thinking that it's seeing stress. And we know that because it's gene expression patterns change. So suddenly it's responding to heat and to salt and to cold and to to drought, even though the plant is growing under normal conditions. And so what we've done is we've actually worked with this system to ask whether when we do this to a plant, its progeny, the seed from that plant, will also have a memory of all those stresses, even though the plant is growing under normal conditions. In other words, can we fool a lineage of plants into thinking that they're actually growing under stress? Now, what they do is they prime themselves for that stress. They start defending themselves against that stress, even when there is none. It turns out that if you take a plant like that, you use it as a rootstock and you graft to it a normal, unmodified plant. You take the seed off of it, those plants will have hardier uh, growth characteristics. They'll be more vigorous, they'll have higher yields and they'll be more resilient. So we started asking, you know, could we actually do this in in an agricultural setting? So we did it in tomato and you would get, you know, 30, 35% increases in yield, a more vigorous plant, a more um, drought tolerant plant, a more heat tolerant plant. We've done it in sorghum, we've done it in soybean, so it seems like all plants know this language, this ability to be reprogrammed. So we, we know it's epigenetic, which means we're not influencing the genetics of the plant, we're influencing the way genes are expressed in the plant. But it turns out plants have a memory of that stress and they have the ability to transmit it even through grafting or through crossing. So it means that you know it looks like a breeding system. You could basically do this to a plant, create this new lineage, use them as rootstocks, and start, you know, producing a much hardier crop without making, you know, without doing any real breeding. And the reason it's valuable is because those traits, that that hardiness, that high vigor, that high yield are really tough to breed for. So if you could do this literally in one to two generations, you could have taken a variety we used to grow and make it, you know, 30% better yielding in two generations. That That's really unheard of.
0: Well, Dr. look. thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm going to take a little break, got to pay some bills, and let's come back and talk a little bit more about some of the other things that you're working on. You're the new director of the Penn State's New Plant Institute. Let's talk about what their goals are and what you're trying to do there and uh, continue to, to school us all on what GMO is all about to make us a little bit better consumers and, and better understanders of the fact that this is something that we as a species need if we're thinking about the future, right? So good, I'm going to take a little break. We'll be back right after this. You've been listening to this episode of Free Thinking with Montel. We'll be back right after this. Well, hey guys, you've been listening to Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is a professor of plant science in the College of Agricultural Sciences and a professor of biology in the Elberly College of Science at Penn State. She has been a plant molecular geneticist researcher for almost 30 years and is the founder under founding director of the Plant Institute at Penn State. Thank you so much, Dr. Shiley McKenzie, for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Tell me a little bit about what the Plant Institute at Penn State's doing and what you guys are working on.
1: So Penn State is a really interesting university when you think about where it's located, because, um, you know, we've got a lot of agriculture there that I think could be built up to be, you know, really those local producers. Um, you can grow a wider range of, for instance, uh, fresh market vegetables, um, fruit trees. But remember that we're completely surrounded by natural forest. I mean, one of the most beautiful forests on the East Coast. And to some extent, Pennsylvania is responsible for maintaining that and keeping it healthy. So from a plant scientist point of view or the plant institute point of view, our job is to, in one way or another, feed all of those different plant science needs. So the Plant Institute was created in order to be thinking about ways that we could in fact support all of that. The idea that we've got you know, uh, uh, a very active agricultural concern, we've also got an active you know, orchard tree concern, but at the same time, we've got forest lands that really need attention, particularly in the face of climate change. So the Plant Institute's job is now to think about ways to develop the fundamental science that will, let's say power all of the technologies that we need um, as growers and as, as foresters find that we need them.
0: I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of focus been put on the deforestation of what's going on in the Amazon rainforest, but we don't talk about what's going on here in the United States. I mean, the majority of cities in this country are losing, you know, 30, 20, 30, 40% of their trees every single year.
1: Well, look at California. It was in one summer. and That's 4% of California's total land that burned. You know, so so the trick with California is not just, wow, we, we really need to figure out how to deal with annual forest uh, fires. What, what we really have to think about is, um, you know, should we be going in and thinking about what we should replace, um, you know, as we start to lose uh, that forest? Because remember that the forest that we're burning down was forest that was put there a hundred years ago, but may not actually be adapted for the next hundred years. Now that climate change comes in, climatology experts can now make predictions of what we're going to see as transitions in the next hundred years. Should we be thinking about reforesting with, with different species or with newly adapted uh, tree um, uh, lineages that will actually prosper better over the next hundred years than what we had before? So, you know, to some extent, you just can stand back and watch forest burn and hope something comes back in its stead. But, you know, to what extent should we be involved in actually thinking about what that new foresting should look like? And then, of course, there's also climate change. You have to remember what forests do for us. They basically filter your water. They basically allocate your rainfall. they um they're basically responsible for the air that you breathe. You know we really need not only to maintain the forests we have, but possibly even to expand them into areas that are not forested now. So there's a lot of science and a lot of, let's say, fundamental biology that has to go into thinking about what our forests should look like over the next hundred years. And we really have not put serious investment into that until now well even now we do not invest in our forests the way we we will need to in order to 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 put them where they need to be
0: i don't believe that worldwide we have any serious conversations going on about that especially when we see the destruction and the fact that we are burning forests to make more room for corn right so that we can raise more cattle so that we think that we're going to be able to feed more people but that's going to at some point in time this is going to run out i mean you, know, you can't keeps keep uh, you know gerbil in a habit trail running 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 forever it's going to get tired and you know pass out so i mean uh, is that what we may be looking at a dismal future
1: well i i'm hoping that policymakers will get actively engaged in this and, and part, part of the reason that they sort of have to is that you've noticed several countries have said that they have sort of a 2050 goal for carbon neutrality And I don't really know how you get there unless you bring forests into the mix because they are the cheapest way for you to basically absorb that carbon you're putting into the atmosphere. They're extremely inexpensive, right? I mean, you plant a few trees. So if you think about it that way, it's possible to get policymakers to think really long and hard about what they want to look, what they want to dedicate to forests and then what they want those forests to look like. You know, how do we make them more efficient at capturing carbon? How do we make them more efficient at filtering our water? You know how do we make them more efficient for doing all of those ecosystem services that we demand you know that takes some science so I'm kind of hoping that there will be you know sort of a policymaker uh, initiation of, of new research and new research dollars that go into to uh, forest let's say restoration
0: you know i also I gonna go back again to that hemp plant but you know there's something called hempcrete that is a concrete that's made out of hemp and I'm told that that once developed out literally could be first off the bricks are stronger than cement but those bricks also maintain for their life their ability to capture and sequester carbon. so why not shift over to you know a, a building block that literally is cleaning the atmosphere at the same time that we're building?
1: Well you know really honestly hemp and, and cannabis in general is one of the most fascinating crops because of its diversity because it makes some of the strongest fibers that we know of. At the same time, it, it creates incredible biodiversity I and mean, it grows very rapidly, huge, huge plants, um, you know, in terms of its growth potential. And at the same time, in terms of its metabolism, um, all of the medicinals that can be acquired from it, there's a whole range. And the problem is because it started as marijuana, and therefore a drug and therefore a restricted product, you know, we really haven't done all the research that we need to do on the metabolism of that plant. Where did it get this, this diversity, you know, it's metabolic diversity is fascinating to scientists, but we we haven't been allowed to work on it. So I think you find that as we start uh, limiting the restrictions uh, to some extent, you're going to see a whole explosion of information that comes out of that crop for all different kinds of uses, including, including this, but it's as a biomass, uh, a generator
0: it's huge well, i mean if we go back in time i mean you know most people don't want to admit it but america was pretty much built on hemp if you go back to the late uh, 1600s you know, the majority of people in this world were eating some sort of hemp-based porridge because they recognized it was one of the highest protein-laden foods or seeds there was um all of the clothing all of the uniforms made for the revolutionary army were made out of hemp fiber you just talked about hemp fiber you know right now there are two. Publicly traded companies that just were founded in the last year that discovered the fact that hemp fiber is a greater or a better um, um, retainer of electrical energy than even graphite. So there are batteries being made now out of hemp fibers. I mean, it's really ridiculous that you know we don't you know look a gift goose right in the eye that's right in front of us. Talk to me a little bit about you're the co-founder of a company called Epicrop Technologies, an agricultural technology company focused on utilizing epigenetics to enhance crop productivity and resilience. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on and where that company is going?
1: Yeah. So when you work in academia, you know, you you ask fundamental questions. How do things work? And then when you actually come upon something like the epigenetics I was talking about earlier, where you suddenly discover if you modify a plant epigenetically without changing its genes, just the way they're expressed, you can start having crops that grow you know, more hardy, um, that have higher vigor, that have higher yield. It's something you want to pass on to a possible agricultural use or even to a forestry use. I mean, this can actually be used in forestry as well to enhance resilience of trees. So how do I get it from the university, right, from my laboratory into the marketplace? So one of the ways that we're trying that now is to, to just launch a, a small startup. So it's called Epicrop Technologies. It's actually it's actually stationed in Nebraska, even though I'm in Pennsylvania. So that's in the middle of the agricultural uh uh, area and and, and epicrop technologies now is trying to take that information that we learned in my lab and now make it available to to crops. So they put it into tomato, they've put it into soybean, they've done large scale uh, field trials, they're putting it into canola now. And the question is does it have a, a future in benefiting uh, growers? It's not regulated, you know, it's it's beautiful. It's it's a non-GM technology. So there's not that initial investment in getting into this technology that you'd have with a GM product. You know, it's one way for me to see whether we can have impact uh, that would actually benefit others. Um, At the same time, we also want to try this with forest trees. I can do that in my lab in Pennsylvania to ask whether we can enhance resilience of our forest. If we were to start to take the lines that are already growing out there, but we now introduce up a genetic variation to them, make them more resilient as we put them back out. So, I mean, there are a lot of technologies that come from universities that could have a real impact on our day-to-day understanding of plants and how we use them. You know, part of it is an educational barrier, part of it is a money barrier. You know, where does the money come from to make that, you know, you were just talking about hemp and all of its wonderful uses. You're really a a walking advertisement for funding of plant science, because that's what that is. It's the discovery that comes with plant science that you you didn't know something until you do. And once you find it, there's all of this avenue uh, available for actually making it useful to people.
0: And it would be revenue that would follow suit. I mean, you take a look at all the wars and devastations around the planet. I mean, now you know people are trying to ship concrete around the world to rebuild. Remember, you know we've gone through the last 20 years of war in the Middle East. That all has to be rebuilt, and you know, sand and water and uh, you know twigs isn't isn't good enough anymore. Especially if they could be building, you know, rebuilding, let's say Lebanon or rebuilding, you know, uh, Afghanistan, rebuilding that with hempcrete you would literally have a little mini rainforest being able to suck in some of the carbon emissions from around the world.
1: So so as you say, on the one hand, you can look at climate change and our circumstances and all the human migration and just feel despair, or you can sort of get excited about the innovation that you see starting to happen, right? I mean, the things that you're talking about, the things that other people come and talk to me about, you know, can I do this with plants? You know, there are a lot of innovators out there that are already thinking these thoughts. You know, if we made the investment, could we actually move some of these solutions forward? So you know, maybe technology is going to be our solution. I know people don't really like the word technology, but you know, look at what's just happened right now with the COVID vaccine. You know, that all just came from technology, from science. It was sitting on the shelf that we were able to mobilize. So who's to say we can't do that with climate change as well? You know, if we were simply to just mobilize the science that's there and find some solutions, we'd have people that are going to go out and come up with these solutions and basically just feeding off the science that's been out there, um, you know, just waiting to be used. I I think it can be a really exciting time if people will be open to the idea of technology and implementing it.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McKenzie for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today. And thanks for sharing all of your knowledge. I'd love to have you back at another time. And, uh, you know, keep on on the breakthroughs that you're you're making with uh, your Epicrop technologies. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, you've been tuned in to Free Thinking with Montel. Make sure you tune in to the next edition. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments.